Welcome to the Journey to Medicine podcast, where you'll find fascinating stories from Stanford students and faculty about their struggles, setbacks, and successes in their journey. Follow along as these conversations help inspire and empower you. And now, your host, Sarita Kamani, faculty at Stanford. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. My co-host, Dr. Michael Zhang. Hi, good morning, everyone. And our guest today is Dr. Stephen Reed, who is joining us from Florida. Uh, Dr. Reed is a neurosurgeon who practiced in academia and private practice. Uh, after retiring from medical practice, he started a nonprofit organization called DrLifeline.org to prevent physician suicides. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Reed. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, let's start with your early years and tell us a little bit more about yourself, your family, and growing up, how did you get interested in medicine? Interestingly, I kind of fell into it almost accidentally. When, when I started college, my plan was to become a chemical engineer and proceed along that pathway. Back then, upon entering uh, college, the space program was in full flourish. We we're having men missions to the moon and so forth. And I thought it would be an exciting place to be. Uh, but then very soon after, the space program got cut back. And everywhere I looked, there were engineers flipping burgers and driving taxis. I had a summer job working as a ward clerk in a small hospital in a suburb of Miami. And I, I found the interactions with the doctors to be very stimulating. So I thought as an alternative to engineering, I would give this medicine thing a try. So this was during college? This was during my first two years of college, yes. I see. And uh, I was fortunate to be enrolled in a program uh, that at that time uh, was called the Junior Honors Program at the University of Florida that essentially compressed an eight-year curriculum into seven years. So I was able to do college and medical school in, in seven years in this program. During the program, I was exposed to research in the neurosciences. I have a tremendous interest in the mind and the body and metaphysical aspects of consciousness. And my original choice was to become a neuropsychiatrist. Mm -hmm. uh, however, after a rotation in psychiatry, I uh, was a little bit disappointed with the state of the art of psychiatry uh, in, in, in the, the mid-70s. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just uh, do neurology. And again, in, uh, after experiencing some rotations uh, at that time, there were really no curable neurologic diseases other than meningitis. Mm -hmm. Everything else was palliative or just long-term care. So that was kind of frustrating uh, for my kind of personality. So I thought, well, neuro-ophthalmology looks good and uh, did some rotations there, really enjoyed the physiology. In, in practice, however, it, it appeared to, to be primarily uh, dealing with children with uh, strabismus and, and uh, other uh, eye movement disorders. I felt that it would be rewarding, but not quite enough. And then it's almost uh, as a grasping at a last straw, I said, okay, you know, everybody's told me to avoid neurosurgery, don't do that. You know, you're crazy if you go into that pathway, those guys work too hard. And uh, Michael will probably confirm that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when I experienced that rotation and saw that, you know, here are people with interesting neurologic conditions, 
it requires a tremendous depth of understanding of uh, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, and so many of these conditions are curable with what the neurosurgeon can do. And on top of that, there was this incredible history of you know breakthrough after breakthrough, uh, be beginning with Harvey Cushing, the father of neurosurgery. I thought, okay, this is it, and uh, it was it. I uh, mm. really uh, liked uh, settling into neurosurgery. You know, it's definitely a challenging field. Did you question that decision uh, about it being really tough? And were you worried at any time that this would be a tough journey for you? Not upon initially entering it, but I, I think that all neurosurgery residents and many neurosurgery attendings experience a dark night of the soul at some point in their training. It has to do with the nature of the underlying processes. You know, although there are the many rewarding cases that we can effect cures, there are many cases that remain futile or that have very poor prognoses. You know, despite all of the advances in tumor biology, tumor immunology, and even precision medicine, we, we still have made very little progress on the treatment of glioblastoma multiforme. I have, uh, I have so many questions I could ask you, you know, as you know, I'm also from the field of neurosurgery. If you don't mind, I'd first like to ask, since you've been through the field for a good amount of time now, and you've explored the interests in the other neurological fields, knowing the progress that's gone on in neurosurgery, knowing the progress that's gone on, say, like in neurology, do you think you would have done it differently? Um, not, not to say that, you know, neurosurgery is uh, any easier or any harder, but uh, knowing that you were motivated by what you could do for patients, I'm just curious for our other listeners who are, you know, still trying to explore medicine, do you think that you've seen a lot of advancements in neurology that, for example, um, can be inspiring to, you know, new trainees? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the personality of the individual that's approaching the specialty. In, in neurosurgery, my impression is that you have two dominant personality types. One is the physician philosopher slash scientist, the guy who's in neurosurgery because he's just really fascinated by the brain, or he's really fascinated uh, by the mind-body problem, or he really wants to to, to, to get at uh, the, the physiology at a level that would not be accessible to, to others. You know, what, what an incredible privilege it is to, to actually see and touch and manipulate the human brain, the most complex organized matter that we know of in the universe that has this incredible correlation with so many aspects of life and personality and uh, perception. So it's the, the, as my mentor, Dr. Roten said, it's the crown jewel of creation. And then, there are the guys who, if they weren't neurosurgeons, they would be cardiac surgeons or they would be trauma surgeons, the, the people who are very motivated uh, and rewarded by just the process of, of doing the surgery itself or the, the being in control and under such uh, a stressful, tense environment. Both types are, are, are critical for the advancement of the field and for their contributions to healthcare. Another question, if you don't mind me following up on your current comments, you talked about glioblastoma. Um, I, I, as well as Dr. Kalani and all neurosurgeons are obviously very familiar for the listeners out there. This is like the classical disease that we study and start to treat. And we know that the, ba the barriers to successes are very, very, very high. But um, again, given your experience and as someone who looks towards, I think, uh, you know, reasons for hope and motivation, 
have there been successes in neurosurgery that you think are inspiring in the last couple decades and during your training throughout your training that you say, wow, you know, it's amazing to see what the progress we still are able to make and, uh, you know, find inspiration from. I think some of the pathways that we're beginning to explore have potential to make some inroads on, on the treatment of that terrible disease. I, I think some of the uh, delivery of agents with, uh, with, with viral vectors, you know, uh, being able to take herpes virus and so forth uh, and do genetic manipulations on the, uh, the tumor biology, I think has real promise. I, I think the various, various sensitization agents, you know, that can be incorporated into the tumor environment that can sensitize the tumor to, to radiation or light or ultrasound, uh, other measures, you know, to uh, try to target the tumor may have potential. I, I really think that, you know, it's, it's not a hopeless scenario, but uh, like I mentioned earlier, it has been rather disappointing that there's been uh, so little real progress on extending the lifespans of people who have glioblastomas. I understand. I, I can appreciate how the armamentarium in uh, neuro-oncologic management just seems to be getting broader, bigger, creative, but um, it would be nice to see that some of those outcomes also trend in the upward direction more than uh, you know, we, we would like to see it currently. This was, this was a great discussion. And what I wanted to know was that if a student came to you, Dr. Reed, and said, well, I don't know if I am the surgeon type. I, I don't know if I can really do surgery. What would you tell that student? Uh, is there a type that can become surgeon or is it something that comes with practice? I think that the most important feature to become a good surgeon is commitment. There's a saying that, you know, in neurosurgery, it takes seven years uh, to learn how to operate and another 10 years to learn when not to operate. Good judgment is the, the most important aspect and the, the, the person has to be willing to take ownership of their actions, but to also understand that that doesn't necessarily mean they're taking ownership of the outcome because there are so many factors that can lead to an undesirable outcome, even if the doctor makes perfectly correct decisions at every step of the way. I guess another aphorism is that uh, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. In neurosurgery particularly, those are uh, important truths. So while going through the training for in neurosurgery, do you remember things about uh, the training that you felt were really difficult. Of course, there are a lot of rewarding experiences, but certain aspects of it, whether it be the outcomes or whether it would be the, the patient conditions, anything that was particularly difficult. My dark night of the soul came about halfway through my residency. We had an attending who became one of the greatest aneurysm surgeons in the world. He, he uh, technically is a uh, a superior neurosurgeon in every regard. He has extremely good judgment. He currently remains one of the best aneurysm surgeons in the world. To get there though, he had to operate on a lot of people who were very sick from ruptured aneurysms and difficult to access aneurysms and so forth. And during that period, he had a run of bad luck and we had a service that was overwhelmed with patients with uh, vasospasm before and after uh, craniotomies, people with very serious neurologic deficits, a lot of people in persistent vegetative states or, 
or dying in the early post-operative period, I felt very uh, down. I said, you know, this, I, I don't think I can do this. And I, I gave it a lot of thought. I went and spoke to the chairman of neurology at our institution and said, you know, I, I think I might want to do a lateral into neurology here. I'm, I'm not sure I'm cut out for this neurosurgery business. And he said, we'd be happy to have you, you know, and we'll give you credit for the time you've done in your residency so far. And uh, then I went to talk to my chairman. He said, almost every resident that I have trained has sat in that seat in front of me at some point in their, their training and said something very much like what you just told me. He took off this watch. He had this beautiful Rolex presidential model gold watch that was a, a gift to him from some of his previous residents. And they had their names engraved on the back of it. And he said, look at this. Each one of these guys was in that chair saying that they didn't want to, to finish. He said, no, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you give me six more months and you still want to move to neurology, he says, you can do so with my blessing, my endorsement. And, you know, if you needed references in the future, you know, they'd be very positive. Otherwise, uh, I, I don't think I could support you doing that. At that time, I felt very helpless. You know, I was kind of at, at his mercy, but it, it, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and so I said, okay, well, uh, I will agree to that. Things got better. And uh, I'm very happy now that he had that talk with me. Otherwise, I would have had a very different career. That, that's an example of the kind of, uh, of things, though, that, you know, happen in, in many residencies and, and evidently often in neurosurgery residencies. I can uh, totally understand. I, I've taken care of the same patients. These are common for all of us, I think, in our field. If you don't mind me asking, in those six months that followed, you know, what did you experience that changed your course? And um, if you could comment just generally for, patient, for future clinicians, what do you recommend for them to do? What steps that should they take to handle these critically ill patients? Because I think for all clinicians out there, at some point in their life, they're going to be dealing with a phase of very critical, critical care that can be challenging on their mental fortitude. I think the best advice I can give is to go easy on yourself and, and truly understand that many things are out, out of your control and that you're, you're not alone uh, on that journey. There's uh, no shame in, in asking for help. There's no shame to admit that there's something you don't understand or you don't know and that you need clarification on it. You're going to have to deal with people at their worst when it comes, with, uh, comes to delivering bad news. So uh, it, it's important to, to be prepared for those things. Do you feel like in the six months afterwards, you were able to reach out to more people, have those conversations that made you feel like um, you, know, you can be more accepting of those outcomes? Yes. Uh, and uh, again, part, part of it was that, uh, like I said, we were just going through kind of a bad period uh, with the, the, you know, it's kind of like uh, going through a storm and coming out the other side. Uh, and, and, and just knowing that I had an option, that uh, I, I wasn't bound to that field for the rest of my life, that I had a choice, you know, that at the end of six months, if I wanted, I could do something differently. It's important to realize that as a doctor, as a resident, you really have a, a lot of power. You're an asset to, to the training programs. No training program wants to lose a resident. I think a lot of things you say, uh, they, they, they make me think of other principles that I similarly share. You know, when you talk about, uh, you know, the string of bad luck that may have happened, I think of like the stock market or playing poker and you realize that you may have skill or you may be an excellent, you know, evaluator of the market or you may be an excellent poker player. 
but uh, probability is always probability and there are going to be downs and ups, but you know, you have a trajectory that you work for. And so as long as you accept that there's a trajectory, um, you should be, you should try to maintain that positivity. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the nonprofit organization that you have started, the drlifeline.org. And uh, when did you start that? How long ago? I, I started that about a year and a half ago in, in earnest. I began, uh, began it just before preparing for retirement. I have had a lot of, uh, unfortunately, experience with, with suicide. I, I lost my father to suicide. He killed himself uh, with a, a gunshot wound to his head, which was particularly difficult uh, to deal with uh, emotionally uh, as a neurosurgeon. Then I've personally known five physicians who have taken their own lives. And of them, three of them were, were close personal friends and people I worked with every day. I didn't really understand while I was in a full-time career of, of, of neurosurgery, just how common that problem is. As you can see on the, on the uh, website, I encourage any of the listeners to, to check out uh, Dr. Lifeline. Doctor is spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R, lifeline.org, to, to learn about the problem. But just to summarize a few interesting statistics, uh, more than 400 doctors a year take their own lives. And given the number of patients that doctors take care of on the average, that means about a million U.S. patients lose their doctor to suicide every year. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for young physicians aged uh, 25 to 34. The only cause of death that exceeds suicide is, is accidents for, for that age group. Incidence of suicide among doctors is, is more than twice that of the general population. It's higher than active duty military, and it's even higher than prisoners. So uh, it's an ex exceedingly high, high rate. I felt that something needed to be done to bring attention to this this problem and to try to make some changes. When I looked into it, I found that there were no organizations whose sole purpose was prevention of physician suicide. I thought that it was time to, to fix that. So I, I started mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Lifeline and I'm trying to get some traction with it now to, uh, to keep it going. So Dr. Reed, why do you think during this work that, you know, when you started this organization and did you find out why there was more suicide uh, in physicians? I, th I think that there are a lot of factors, but some of the major ones are, number one, doctors tend to be very reluctant to seek help. When, when a doctor is experiencing that dark night of the soul or some uh, other issues, they're, they're very uh, unlikely to disclose their distress to their colleagues. They are reluctant to seek help. Unfortunately, that's not an irrational position. Many doctors are afraid of the stigma that can be attached to them if, if, if it becomes known that they are having any kind of mental health issues, uh, like depression. They, they fear getting entrapped in a uh, physician recovery program. Uh, there are a lot of uh, programs out there that are supposed to help the impaired physician, but most of them owe their DNA to drug and alcohol abuse type programs. And, and so many times the doctors find themselves in a, a condescending environment uh, that can be very expensive and that they literally can't escape. And so again, they're reluctant to, to raise the issue. The other principal issues have to do with things like moral injury and learned helplessness. The, the, the concept of moral injury 
is one in which the doctor finds himself at the crossroads between competing interests. So the, the hospital administration is telling the doctor, maybe he's a surgeon, you need to do more surgery, you know, and then the, the surgeon says, you know, gosh, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to operate on people that don't need surgery? There may be restriction from an insurance company or the hospital formulary, you know, that the doctor knows that there's a better drug for this patient, and, but they're encouraged not to, to prescribe that. So that the doctors find themselves in these pressures where uh, what's best for that patient isn't what's best for his employer. And then there's the issue of uh, learned helplessness. And that has to do with this feeling of uh, not being effective when it comes to managing one's own life. It's, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm not even going to bother talking to hospital administration about this problem because every time I talk to them, I don't get anywhere. They just... It's, it's, it's pointless to do that, you know, or I'm not going to raise this issue with, with my chairman because he never responds, you know, when I, when I have this. And, and uh, many times uh, doctors will, will learn that they are helpless in, in a particular scenario. There, there are many other, of course, financial issues that doctors are facing, you know, that uh, particularly under this COVID scenario where a lot of doctors would like to be working and, and they can't. I think, think there are a few, few major areas that we can really focus attention on improving in the practice environments that can have a dramatic effect on, on cutting down the overall problem of doctor suicide. I have uh, two questions to follow up on. Um, one is that, uh, well, I understand that your program came on later in your career uh, and you were training residents and working with residents uh, earlier on. How have you mentored differently since uh, working on this program or how would you recommend people mentor differently, you know, their trainees uh, now? I would encourage a culture of open conversation and kind of a debriefing scenario. There's a book that is used by the War College called On Combat, and it's by a guy named Lieutenant Grossman. And and he analyzes in this book the the, the physiology and and the psychology of soldiers in combat and and, uh, after combat. And, uh, you know, obviously they deal with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Much of what we experience as doctors also falls into that, that type of classification, post-traumatic stress. One of the things that the military found that is particularly effective in mitigating post-traumatic stress is the, the post-action debriefing, where they uh, get together and, and, and they recount, okay, exactly what happened here. What was I doing? What was going on around me? What factors led me to make this or that decision moving forward? Why did I take that action? Why did I not take a different action? These sessions are ended with some reassurance to the person. Okay, it's, you, did, you did what you could. You did, you did the right thing given the information you had. I think having, after a particularly traumatic situation for the doctor, like the loss of a patient or a very disruptive confrontation, a medical error, things like that, to have a debriefing that uh, offers something other than criticism, that offers some support. It says, okay, you know, you're human. We understand this. This happens. And there's a, there's a good, from, from the attending side of it, there, there's a, a good uh, kind of mechanism that you can employ, and, and that is called the substitution approach. So what you do as an attending is you, you imagine, okay, in this scenario, if it hadn't been that resident, would this have happened if another resident had been in that slot? Okay. In, in other words, is this, can we trace the, the principal root of this problem to that person or is it rather the system that that person is in? 
So if you can substitute another person and the same result was likely, then it's really not the fault of that person that was in that position. It was more of a systemic issue. If I understood your question, what, what should we do when we're, we're teaching residents along these lines to help avoid these issues? I think that's, that's it, you know, encourage communication and, and, and to inject some more compassion in, into, the, the, into the scenario. Uh, thank you. I think that's a, a great comment to make, and uh, I certainly appreciate it. The second question I have is kind of uh, inverse to the first one, because as, as you know, our listeners are mostly people who are beginning their training or int- interested in a training. And so they're not in the role to necessarily, at least early on, change the system, implement systemic changes or dictate how the debriefing session goes. But for them who have colleagues who may be struggling with medicine or uh, clinical training, what do you recommend for them? So for example, I was recently reading an article on uh, Medscape, I think it was, where they were saying how we should try to, as you said, uh, destigmatize the, the aspect of suicide. And I thought it was interesting how they said we shouldn't use the word commit suicide because it makes it sound criminal. And they said we should say people died by suicide, you know, as opposed to committing suicide. So, uh, you know, in addition to participating in debriefing sessions with the mentors, how would you recommend colleagues, you know, people who are not comfortable yet with uh, uh, entering deep conversations yet, how would you maybe recommend that they help you know, make the environment more approachable to helping people who are depressed or struggling? I, I think lower the threshold to speak up. You know, be, be, uh, if you see that you, you have a, a colleague that is going through a tough time, if, if you see that there's a change in their personality, speak up. Just, just open, open the door. And for, and for the individuals that are embarking on on this career at the the early stage the one i think that this podcast is often addressed to the journey into medicine realize that you're going to go through some tough times you're going to have a lot of soul searching you're going to confront things you 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 can't imagine uh if you're in any kind of a serious specialty it's almost inevitable at some point in your career that someone is going to die or be seriously injured as a result of your actions You, you have to be prepared for when that time comes one thing I think you can do is write a letter to your future self. Look at your motivations now. Why do I want to be a doctor? What is it about this? What is it about me? What am I planning to do with this? Then say, I understand you know, to my future self that this is a hard time, but don't forget what, why you went into this. You know, keep those goals alive. Kind of coach yourself, coach your future self. You know, uh, be your best friend and, and keep that letter. Keep that letter. It's like, it's like a, a psychological inoculation. It's a psychological vaccine. You're, you're preparing yourself for an exposure that you're likely to encounter in the future. And uh, put it somewhere where you can pull it out really quick when you, when, you, when you find those moments. And give yourself some instructions, like talk to somebody, seek help. The life you save may be your own. There's a, another piece of advice. This comes from uh, Brian Sexton, and it's called Three Good Things. And this is an exercise that if you can do it, it, it's remarkably effective. It actually works better than most antidepressants. And, and, and that is try for two weeks to at the end of the day say, okay, what are three good things that happened today? They can be anything as long as, long as they are something that you identified during that day that you interpreted to be a good thing. What Brian's research found was that just a two week performance of this exercise has a measurable effect up to a year later, decreasing burnout and and depression. One of the most effective things that you can possibly do, and it's so simple, 
Absolutely. Dr. Reed, you have raised such important points and uh, offered such great advice. And uh, I really think that the work that you're doing at this point is really important. We are so thankful that you came and discussed about your work with us on this podcast. Um, well, so I think- It's an honor to speak to you. Thank you. And now for the disclaimer. The Journey to Medicine podcast and its guests provide general information and entertainment, but not medical advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Journey to Medicine team are those of each individual and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Journey to Medicine team and its guests, employers, sponsors, or organizations we are affiliated with. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us.